What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And good afternoon, everybody. I hope you remember to spring forward. It's a lot easier nowadays because everything goes forward an hour automatically. We are, of course, live. And if you're with us live, I already see a couple of folks have already taken us up on the invitation. I'll go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That's where you will find the chat room. Uh, we'll be monitoring that during the course of the show. And if you have some observations you would like to share or even a question or topic that you would like for my co-host and I to chat about in the course of the next hour, that's the perfect place to put it uh, because we are open mic open lines, open chat room, and, of course, open phones. And if you would like to, you can look up at the top of the show page. That has our studio number, and you're even free to call in because we will be keeping an eye on that. Besides that, we're going to take charge and have our little melee format and just bounce all over the place as we deem fit. And uh, my my co-host is tanned, rested, and ready after traveling the eastern seaboard. Um, Good afternoon, Mark. Great to talk to you. Hey, Sal. Good to talk to you. we got a rainy day here in North Carolina, and driving in the rain is always fun and delightful. Well, yeah, hopefully this will be a more relaxing experience than driving in the rain. Uh, yeah, down or, down in the free state of Florida, we just had a plain old beautiful day. Uh, bright, bright blue skies, about 70 degrees. Can't complain about it at all. Um, yeah, it's, uh, life is good in springtime. We've got no reason to complain uh, We uh, during the pre-show. For our friends out in California, uh, be careful what you ask for. You wanted some participation. You got it. Uh, we were chatting a little bit about uh, the Tahoe area where we both spent a little bit of time. And uh, when, you, when you measure your stow in meters uh, or yards, that's usually not a good thing. But I think the drought's done for our friends in California. Yeah, they, when I was a kid, we lived in uh, in the Central Valley at Castle Air Force Base, and we used to drive around. And you know, the flood flooding wasn't that uncommon back in those days, uh, and I think probably neither were droughts. But uh, yeah, when they talk about dams uh, bursting in, uh, you know, what county is it? Anyway, one of the counties, my Monterey area, and uh, people having to evacuate houses. You know, so they got they got water, they got tons of snow. Hopefully, this will recharge most of if they've. If they've kept any reservoirs, this will recharge the reservoirs they need to, to keep going forward and allow us to have delightful things like uh, California almonds and all that good stuff. It's a, an opportunity to excel for their uh, um, state officials and their politicians and everything else. And um, I guess uh, that's, a, that's a strange lead-in, but not really. Um, Again, during the pre-show for our listeners, uh, when we have one of our melee formats, uh, we both uh, throw our cards on on the ground and see, see if they they overlap. Where what we wanted to talk about today, and we kind of wandered into um, a topic that's kind of fundamental if you're in the national security arena, whether you're wearing a uniform or you're on the civilian side, because it's something that we either execute or we experience, or both, on an almost daily basis. And I think it applies not just to the military or government service, but absolutely applies in the uh, civilian sector and, in a way, even in your own family. 
and they're often used interchangeably, or you will see where one is best used, the other one is, and that is management during leadership. I remember as a as a JO, um, for those that um, are going to <laughs> have a an eye twitch when I mention it, remember in the, the mid-90s, everybody got uh, decided that they wanted to get with Deming and his total quality management, of course. They didn't want to use management in the military, so they just changed the word to total quality leadership, which was one of the reasons why it didn't last very long. But that argument's been going on for a long time as far as their characteristics and their utility and when they're most appropriate. And, um, you know, leadership versus management. Um, what do you think, Mark, is are they are they both useful? Uh, and in the military context, should you have one more than the other? Um, where do people get them confused? I mean, when I when I throw that out there, uh, what's uh, something that comes to mind? Yeah, they're they're both essential, and they're and they are they are tied together if you have a good organization. And 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 let me let me preface this by saying I used to teach these. Uh, leadership and management seminar back in the dark ages. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I always am impressed with is when you go to an organization and they have, uh, and this is, we used to write these, remember the days we used to write mission statements and, and you had a, you were supposed to get a clear idea of what your uh, primary, the job of your company was, what you were trying to do with whatever organization you had. And then you would have, uh, you'd have mission and you'd have a vision statement, which is supposed to tell you how we're going to get there. And then you had yep. this, uh, uh, had the, what I consider the other part were the values. So, and every time I saw an organization that had problems, it seemed to me they would sometimes get their values mixed up with, with what their primary mission was. So if your primary mission, let's take the United States Navy, primary mission is to provide uh, the naval component for national defense. And your, your mission is to make sure you have the, the assets and the equipment and you've made the argument and you've gotten the people and you are leading them so that they understand their job is, uh, uh, as we as we start every day, your job that day is to make sure that we're ready to go to war and you will protect uh, the United States and its constitution and its people. Okay, so, you know, I mean, that's my mission statement for the Navy. Maybe maybe the Navy has another mission statement. But then you tie into that, you know, vision, how we're going to get there, yeah, yeah. And then you tie into your values, and your values are we're going to, you know, that's where you get to the, we're going to treat people and in such and such a way, we're going to treat people equally. We're going to treat people uh, fairly. We're going to we're going to make sure that our people have the tools they need to do the job. And this is where you get into the Deming side of it, because TQM really involves getting part of the, the Deming mission is make sure your workers have the tools they need to do the job right. And and so you know you want to make sure you have the best equipment that the that the people know how to use and that it, it it fulfills the functions you see when you come up with your mission of defending the country. So I think they're tied very closely together. The leadership involves making sure you have your vision your your mission clearly stated and you don't mix up the the vision and the and the uh, 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 values to the extent that they you let them override uh, your primary mission. So sometimes you're going to say, "I can't take care of my people because the mission is such that I've got to." Uh, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. We're going to have to send people in harm's way. And if you ever have seen the John Wayne movie and. Uh, they were expendable. You've got these PT boats, and and they literally were uh, expendable. They were they were there to, uh, they were not uh, capable of surviving. Well, that you know that is if your if your value is I can't let any of my people die. You've got a problem if your mission is sometimes you have to send your is such you have to sometimes send your people into into harm's way. That makes sense. It does, but there's a reason why people can spend a, almost an entire semester studying this. I, I've always find that a lot of the conflict comes from it, – it, it's in the same neighborhood as making sure you know the difference between what is legal 
one is ethical, and one is moral. And you have a mission. And the old phrase uh, that sometimes is, is used incorrectly, but um, that's not who we are or the American way of doing things, is if you have um, a mission, and inside every mission, you have restraints and constraints. Constraints are things externally that can prevent you from doing things like uh, uh, the polar ice cap will stop your hydrofoil from working. You know, that's, that's, that's a constraint. Restraint is something that you impose yourself on what you're going to do. And I think you can make a condition, um, a conditional relationship, if not a direct one, between restraints and values, how they inform each other. Um, there's uh, values, of course, can be subjective, but uh, sometimes they are codified into rules of engagement or national caveats of what you will or will not do, but your values can restrain your mission. I remember a conversation we had back in the uh, the late double zeros with a guy who uh, officially defined himself as a retired Ukrainian major general. He really was a retired Soviet major general. He was the J-2 in Afghanistan in the mid to late 1980s. And uh, over on the NATO side of the house, uh, we were telling him what we were planning to do. Um, this was right before McKernan took over. And uh, he made a comment roughly, yep, this is very similar to what we did, um, except we would have done other things to try to. Uh, we were, I think we were talking about the ring road. He said, yeah, we would pretty much we, – we would mine these valleys, and then we would bomb the villages on the mountainside. Um, and that caused a few people to laugh, some people to just stare into the distance. But that's a value system. That uh, restrained uh, the mission that we are trying to accomplish because the Soviets had a different set of values. And NATO had a distinctly different set of values. They, they both ultimately resulted in, in defeat for both powers. But I think that's one way to look at values and how that can influence your mission as part of your constraints. And, of course, that can change really fast when there is a change in leadership where you can get a different set of commander's intent or different direction and guidance. And sometimes those can be mm, mechanical, economic, logistics. But sometimes they're based on values. We will no longer do this. We will do that. It's, um, it's in many ways, it's, it's inside our control. And I think we saw and people rightfully are still discussing this, is it used to be that America prided itself that at least not officially to do what some people would define as torture. And uh, I remember before uh, 9-11, there was actually some some great discussions, one of which was about the uh, World War II German Luftwaffe's best interrogator, never laid a hand on anybody and got the most information out of, out of the American and British uh, aviators, um, that external things can change a value system such that it can change how you restrain how you're going to try to conduct a mission. If your intel force's mission is to find out where senior leaders are, um, the values are going to restrain what they are allowed to do or not to do. And external stressors can cause people and organizations to rather rapidly change their value system such that uh, a few years earlier, if you had said that down in Guantanamo Bay, it would be policy to waterboard and do a variety of things to people we had captured, uh, people wouldn't think it would have been as easy as it actually uh, turned out to be. And I think it's a hard topic because then you go, is that good or bad? <laughs> well, it depends upon your point of view, your system of morality, and then as you go up the change, 
uh, is is an ethical issue, i.e., you are breaking reg- regulations, or is a legal issue, where um, he's now a professor at uh, UC Berkeley Law, I believe. Yao or Yo, I forget his name. He was the guy who uh, changed, found a way to change what was allowed or not allowed at Guantanamo. I think that whole that whole spectrum and how it informs both directions uh, is is a fascinating and ongoing topic. And you can even see it internal to an organization. Uh, I know in uh, Afghanistan or any type of coalition evolution, if you have a certain mission come up. You have some nations that can come with you and some people who say, I'm sorry, I can't, uh, simply because their nation won't allow you to. Uh, the argument about what was considered counterterrorism versus um, other missions was always a big argument, and it had to do with that, that spectrum from legal to ethical to moral to, to values. I can't really – I might come to my mind in a second, but we almost need um, uh, Dr. Curran Shanks um, get Paula in here to talk about uh, what's the difference between values and morality because uh, I believe there is a, a different definitional issue, but how that uh, practically executes itself uh, I think is a little harder to define. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge. I mean, you look back at the, you know, there's a there's a national morality so that when the the stories break about my lie, say, or um, which was the attack on a village in Vietnam where uh, Lieutenant Cali let his platoon uh, or company or whatever he had go crazy and they killed a bunch of people they shouldn't have killed, stopped by a by the way, as much as possible, by a warrant officer who landed his helicopter and uh, told him to stop. He, he finally, by the way, got recognized for his uh, his actions for that and, and uh, you know awarded some some uh, medal for that. But that was a national that it was a national value that was uh, uh, broken by by this this group in Vietnam. The other one was the treatment of the prisoners at at the uh, Abu Ghraib uh, prison. You know, that is again a national uh, morality uh, and this is when the newspapers and the news services do a service for us as they raise these things and say this is this is something, you know, that your your people did. Are you happy with this? And, you know, obviously uh, no nobody in uh, was telling these people to do the stuff they did. They just they did it, and it was wrong uh, by the standards of, of the nation. Now, has, has you know the more complicated issue, and I'm sure we really do need to get a professor on to discuss this, is when you when your morality changes, when 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 groups of people um, can can justify actions. Uh, uh, burning down police stations on the basis that to them immoral things happen in those stations and therefore they have the right to take action against it. You know, what, what lines are you drawing? But I, I think, you know, that, we, we can get down to the weeds on this and probably shouldn't because my point was really that, you know, the, the focus of an of a organization like the Navy, and the Navy says our mission is to recruit, train, equip, and organize, deliver combat-ready and evil forces to win conflicts and wars while managing security and deterrence through sustained forward presence. That's fine. That's a mission. And our values are honor, courage, and commitment. You know, uh, those are great. But what are you doing if your values are those, you know, what are you doing about the issue of somebody, uh, a, a SEAL chief petty officer, say, who who does something that in many people's eyes is horrendous, or, you know, or you're not treating all your all your people equally, you know, how, what are we what are we doing with those values? But can we let those discussions and those problems bubble up to the point where they begin to dominate and control the leadership that should be devoting itself to the, fulfilling its main mission, which is uh, uh, national security and, and, and having ready naval forces. And I think that's, the, that's where we see the rub sometimes when, when people on blogs, no one shall be named, of course, who point out that you know, we're letting our ships rust. Well, now we see the Navy leadership 
saying we don't want rusty ships, right? So, so that has an effect. Somebody has said, yeah, uh, that's a good point, uh, and it's my job as a leader to make sure that, that our people have the tools and the time and the equipment they need to, to help straighten that out. That, I mean, that isn't that what we want from our from our leaders and our managers? You know, the management side of it is all that tools and equipment and and uh, and time for your people to fix that problem. So I think they're as we were discussing before. I think they're they're very closely related, and the the moral issues are also and and uh, value issues are also tied in there. The, the the question is how we bounce those things back and forth, and which which value becomes a priority over over other values. And I'm going to share something that we, we did in the pre-show because I think you made a really good point about it is when I was looking at the maritime side of the house as you're trying to look at management versus leadership, I think uh, good people can, can argue the specifics of what he's doing. However, General Berger, the commandant of the Marine Corps in the last, especially 18 months, I think, though time flies, it might have been longer, um, in pursuit of his EABO concept, he's been out there within his restraints and constraints and his job responsibilities to uh, move the conversation, move policies, move equipment, uh, training um, towards what he thinks the Marine Corps should focus on to accomplish the mission in Westpac. Um you know, driving that conversation, making it very clear what your priorities are and what you want to focus on. Um, I, I think that at the highest level, uh, if you have good people, you tell them what your intent is and where you want to be, and they'll, they'll help get you there. But I thought he's done a real good job at that, whereas I mentioned that a lot of what we see from the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, uh, I think – is more along the management side of the house. And you made a very good point that, um, and I don't have uh, a really good grasp of how this goes in the army and the air force. I'm sure it's very similar that, um, you know, general Berger being embedded inside the Navy umbrella, he's got a little more uh, time to invest in what he's doing. Whereas uh, as CNO, that train man and equipped for the entire U.S. Navy, <laughs> and I, I, I believe we have this number right. If not, I, we got we got John Conrad over in the in the chat room. We are blessed uh, to have him join with the usual suspects. Uh, he may correct us if wrong, but I think it was OpNav when you include all their shipyards has 80,000 employees. There's a lot of management that has to do to to lead an organization like that. So. Uh, perhaps inside of his roles and responsibilities in that position, that is what you want him to be, more of a manager than a leader. Of course, that begs the question, who's going to do the burger version on the Navy side of the house? Uh, maybe that's a uh, institutional design challenge. Uh, and other CNOs perhaps have, have done the mix differently, for better or worse. It also depends upon what you allocate to your subordinates. But I think if you look at Gilday's background, um, and this isn't uh, a, a negative thing because everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. I think he comes from more of a managerial vice, a, a leadership background. So maybe he's playing to his strengths in that regard. But I think when you get up really, really high up like that, depending upon the, the mix of people that you have working for you, you can delegate certain areas to and what your specialty is, that it, perhaps it's okay to be – at a variety of different points along that leadership to management spectrum. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Eisenhower was a manager. A lot of people think, and you know, was he a, was he a combat leader? I don't, I don't think so. But he was. He certainly managed a coalition that he needed to manage. And and I I have great sympathy for Admiral Gilda. You know, if you look at the the structure of the Navy, he's got all these semi autonomous groups working that are there that are, you know, so you've got NAVC, I think is the group that has 80,000 civilian employees. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got your submarine community, you've got your aviation community, you've got the surface community, you've got the, the uh, special operations forces, you've got, uh, you've got, uh, you know, the uh, supply corps, you've got dental, you know, everything, the whole, the whole range of stuff that, that 
would seemingly be under his umbrella and and who's coordinating somebody's got to coordinate all these leaks because you know that the the sub folks are going you know we're the most important force and you know the <laughs> the aviation guys are going we're the most important force and you know it is it is the department of defense writ a little smaller in the department of the navy and uh to, I, I think you really do need to have both leadership and management skills to to kind of get this to to work. And uh, you know the 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 question is uh, who uh, you know if you're looking at it from from where we want to be. And, and you know every now and then we see like I think they just called a halt to building the uh, some of the amphibs for a while. Uh, you know what are we doing? <laughs> Somebody has to ask that question. What are we doing? And how does this how is this affecting our mission? And I think that happens, and and that is a leadership job. Uh, you know where are we on? And here's where you get to the leadership. Where are we on the on meeting our goals? And can I get all can all of you competing entities inside the house uh, agree that that we need to really have a discussion about which is the most you know one of the most vital things we need right now to you know, when the when the American public calls on us to do our job that we don't go oh. Uh, uh, gee, uh, uh, you know, only a third of our amphibs are ready to sail. So, you know, who's who's whose problem is that? Is that surface guys? Is that the NAVC folks? Is it is it uh, you know where where does that come from? And how do we fix this? So it, when they went to the aviation guys and because the uh, F-18s weren't uh, operating at a very high level. You know that was a major effort to, and and kind of embarrassing that they had to put all that work into getting a uh, the F-18 community so that it was what 80 percent I think uh, uh, capable rather than whatever the low number was before that. Yeah, uh, John Conrad g- gave us the facts here. It's like uh, NAVC is 86,000, Nav Air is 40,000, uh, submariners. Um, I'm, I'm sure they have quite a bit. Interesting data point, though. U.S. Coast Guard, writ large, just 40,000. Uh, it's it's the Navy is an absolute huge huge organization, and you know speaking of the you know on the submarine side of the house, kind of switching gears for a little bit, um, I guess some of the big news of the last week is everybody's anticipating the. Uh, I assume the Australian Prime Minister is coming to San Diego as well. I don't know. I didn't see that in the articles I read, but I know the British Prime Minister is going to San Diego to meet with President Biden about the uh, AUKUS submarine announcement. And from what we've heard initially, and this is the argument that that I've made before that uh, I don't see why other people, maybe because I'm wrong, um, that other people haven't really seen this. But uh, the initial plan that's leaked so far is that Australia, in order to get them up on step faster, they'll get five uh, U.S. Virginia-class submarines, and while they have or work on a modified version of the uh, British Astute-class submarine, um, SSNR, I think is what they're talking about, you know, both of the concerns go back to something we've talked about quite a bit here. It has to do with our incredibly fragile, thin, and under-resourced industrial sector for submarines. And the the pushback for a lot of people who don't like it is they don't want to see what few U.S. submarines we have because we just can't flip a switch and build another one for them. So it logically is going to come out of U.S. production lines that they don't like that because that stops us from building our submarine fleet faster. I, I don't... That makes sense, I think, if you don't look beyond a very blinkered left and right. In the larger sense, when you look at any major conflict of the last century plus, the U.K. and Australia have fought with us. And if anything happens in the Westpac, probably the only European nation that will help us in any regard will be the British the French might help a little bit on the periphery to protect their self-interest and their their um, economic zones of influence in southern and southeastern 
Pacific, but I don't think we can rely on them. And as a result, those five Virginias, they may be flying a different flag, but they'll be in the fight the same way the U.S. are. And there's a greater gain to be had by helping make Australia, which is not a large nation. It's roughly the size of the Netherlands and Belgium, the Benelux, if you made a nation out of them. Um, they're a, a medium power at best, but they've got a huge continent, huge resources. You can't beat their geography. And more importantly, uh, when you include the UK, that's three of the five eyes. Um, New Zealand and Canada will be a, a rounding error in any Pacific war. So anything we can do to make Australia and the UK closer to us, that's as important to Japan, Philippines. Um, I would I would love to see us doing more stuff with Indonesia. Um, and as a side issue, having had dinners for for months on end with with Australians in Kabul, uh, they have a very interesting relationship with Malaysia, uh, which is no small creature. Uh, they both also have even uh, you could argue, if not more, at least equal to influence in Singapore. Um, so there's just a lot of gain there that I think, uh, if nothing else, if people want to go into high warble because they're missing five submarine command slots because we can't build faster, well, maybe that's a great opportunity to make a larger discussion about our uh, industrial base when it comes to nuclear power. Yeah, and uh, you know we we're talking about leadership. I, I will commend the the uh, the Biden administration uh, and the and the, the Navy for uh, getting getting this thing rolling. This 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 uh, this is good leadership. This is what we want. If you're going to lead the free world uh, in in a uh, China, then. You, by golly, you got to lead it, and the way you lead it is by saying we're willing to share our toys, so that so that the Correct. The, the sea lanes will remain open, and those sea lanes benefit everyone. And by the way, China, including you, you dirt bags, <laughs> you ungrateful dirt bags. <laughs> so this is this is this is this is great. This is leadership, and and you know I think we this is one of those cases situations where the faster the better. Uh, you know, I, I suggested at one point that we take a couple of tubs and and uh, let's you know let's drag them on down there. And, and but yeah, they're still active. We don't you know we're, it's not a it is not a it's a net loss to U.S. Navy. It's not a net loss to the Allied to the Allied force that we need. And we need you know we we need to think a little bigger in this case because the area we're talking about. Uh, out there in the in the far reaches of the Pacific, from Washington D.C., that's like a zillion miles, and might as well be on the moon. But uh, you know that's a that's a huge area, and we need all the friends there we can get, and we need all the equipment out there we can get. And over in the comments section, uh, Peter K., my favorite uh, New York Greek American, whose last name I can never pronounce, <laughs> he'll have to educate me again. He brought up a good point that. Um, what I mentioned was really phase two and phase three of the operation. Uh, phase one, we believe, um, is going to be U.S. Virginia-class submarines basing out of Australia in some capacity or not, which opens the door to, in the smart world, um, mixed crews. So as the Australians wait for their own, they already are building up a cadre of officer and enlisted uh, experience in the Virginia-class. And boy, you talk you talk about easy billets to fill. Okay, who wants to get uh, who wants the PCS get overseas credit for Australia? Uh, you'll have no problem filling those billets. You'll be able to be very competitive. Um, so I, I'm a little envious of our of our submarine sailors who might have an opportunity <laughs> to be stationed in Australia. There are worse places to be. Um, but that that again makes sense, and I like how you tied it in to leadership. Because there's personal leadership and there's national leadership. And um, I think for, for those that are moving this in the direction it is, we've both individually on MidRats, we've been you know critical of decisions that have been made in a variety of areas. 
But uh, I, I agree with you in this in this particular case. Um, and there's always room to screw it up. But this is turning into a really good news story about um, national leadership with friends and partners doing something where the, the collective effort is going to be much greater than uh, the sum of its individual parts. Yes, I know the French are a little grumpy about it, but if I was an Australian, I would have a lot more confidence in uh, being able to get to a satisfactory conclusion with the, uh, with the British and the Americans than I would the French, just not for, just for economic size, but also for cultural reasons and historical reasons. It's, uh, it's, we'll see how it plays out. But so far, bravo Zulu to the, the folks that are moving the ball down the, the road here. So far, it's looking really good. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's excellent. I think also the you know I keep thinking we're, we are embrace it with Japan, and you know they have these excellent uh, they have an excellent submarine force themselves, and it, they they're not nukes, but they're they really they're, do. Uh, they, they are they are excellent boats, and uh, I, you know I think it's. My 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 uh, suggestion for helping for them helping us is to uh, buy some of their flying boats, which we could could really use. <laughs> and uh, we've already discussed that uh, on other occasions. But uh, you know, let's let's really be partners and and uh, and and let's do this right. So uh, the, the part of, a certain part of leadership. Of, so, part of leadership is is mutual respect. Um, you have to re, uh, respect your your friends, your allies, your partners, uh, your subordinates, those that are weaker than you as much as stronger than you. And I, like I said, I, we've gone down this rabbit hole again, but it did it did trigger me. But I think it goes back to our our discussion we started with about leadership. Is sometimes you the deal breaker to do something or not do something or something that moves it from a 40% yes to a 51% yes is to step back and go, this is an opportunity to, to demonstrate and to help build the bonds that connect us. Um, it's a little bit of respect. It's a little bit of acknowledgement and goodness knows the U S Navy, uh, and, and our friends in the coast guard, um, really could use that capability, especially in the Western Pacific. And I, I'm still shocked that NAVAIR, I, I guess if it doesn't have an afterburner, they're not going to advocate for it. But um, if anybody's seen how many sharks there are in the Western Pacific, um, you're, you don't want to float around in there for days on end until you die of thirst. You want you want something that can come pick you up out of range of helicopters and ships. Uh, but that would be a great sign of respect and acknowledgement of the fact they do buy a lot of American kit. If we got um, a few dozen of those assets that should the balloon go up, uh, they will not be underemployed. Yeah, and and speaking of respect, I think it's the other the other group that we have not always treated well, but which we really need to to embrace is the Philippines. And uh, I mean, we we've, we've had a long relationship with them. It hasn't always been uh, <laughs> as friendly as we would like. We left under kind of a cloud. But but you know, we need as as John Conrad has pointed out, and good for you, John. Uh, the Philippine mariners comprise a huge percentage of of civilian uh, mariners around the world. And, and they are uh, they're really good at what they do, and we need to to, um, to help the Philippines uh, allow us to help those mariners uh, and uh, and and work with them to uh, to to make sure that uh, the, the, our country understands how important those mariners are to us and why we really need to embrace uh, the, the our relationship with the Philippines as as firmly as we can. Yeah, they're they're great. I mean, there's there's been you know political issues that have made things a little rough on a nation to nation basis on occasion, depending upon the personality and the winds. But as an individual and as a people, um, the, the the Filipinos are just such great 
mariners. They're great sailors, uh, and they're great Americans. I, there's a huge uh, Filipino-American community here in town. Uh, it's such a national partnership that really did – it didn't die on the vine, but it, it really faded – and I don't know where you could draw the line at, but I know your generation, who were JOs at the tail end of the Vietnam War, I mean, you remember what a huge presence Filipino Americans and Philippine nationals had, in, especially in the U.S. Navy and on naval bases. And I saw the tail end of that when I was a, a JO in the 1990s. Um, it's not as much of a presence. Uh, especially once our, our younger sailors now than it once did. It would be really interesting to see if we can rekindle that partnership that we would, you're not going to see, you know, recruiting stations propping up again, but um, especially if we are able to find a way to better integrate their civilian mariners, that that partnership could be rekindled. But they definitely, um, as a nationality and ethnicity, however you want to look at it, they they did used to be a much larger presence in our Navy. They still are. Uh, because you look at multi-generational uh, service in the Navy, that definitely is in um, in that community. Yeah, and the I'll tell you, the, the shipyard in Subic Bay was a fantastic facility. I mean, you could get stuff done there that and 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 uh, that would be hard to have get done in in, in any shipyard in the world. Those guys were, I mean, they're just great workers, uh, highly skilled at what they did. And uh, I, I've always wondered why we, when we forced to close down uh, that shipyard, we, we didn't try and export as many of those, invite as many of those uh, workers as we could to, to some of the other uh, shipyards because we were, they were they were just extraordinarily so, you know like when uh, I think it was the Midway got run, run into by a, a freighter, and uh, had a bunch of damage to it like an elevator and and uh, uh, I think its whole port side got dinged pretty well. You know they took it back into Subic and and within a, a few weeks they had that ship back online. So uh, it's just it's just uh, that that was a great loss we lost the Subic Bay. Uh, naval shipyard and the other facilities there, and uh, I would hope that won't, we won't let that uh, opportunity, if we get a chance to, to have a great relationship with us with the Philippines again, that would be wonderful. But, but you know, a lot something, of oh, sorry, go ahead. No, oh, go ahead, please. Oh, I was I was going to shift. You know, we were we were talking about headlines too. That that so much of our our uh, leadership is driven by by things that appear in the, in the paper. And you, you're pointing out that, yeah. that uh, when, you, when you look at, at some of the other, uh, other countries' uh, press, they have a whole different way of looking at the world than, than, uh, than our media does. Uh, so uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit, because I thought it was, it was interesting we were talking about it earlier. Sure. I mean, I, I'm a paid subscriber to the Washington Post, um, mostly because it's opposition research for me. Uh, the, the rea- there's, a, there's a certain reality. Um, Washington Post and the New York Times have a huge influence in our national conversation. Um, lesser extent, the Wall Street Journal, you don't have to like it. You just have to recognize it. So if you want to know what a lot of decision makers and policymakers are looking at, you've, you've got to read two out of the three of those organizations. Um Newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. Um, just, just to uh, placate myself, I, I my sacrifice to Vol is I do not pay for New York Times, but I do pay for full access to Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and uh, yeah, because I want to know what what people are uh, that are making these decisions are are reading. And when you look at the Washington Post, you pull it up; they're talking about. Silicon Valley Bank, because a certain socioeconomic group, all their friends are, are get it. There's there's an interesting discussion about Arctic protections of an oil project, not really military. Um, they want to talk about how important callous dairy is. Give me a break. Um, murder in the final four. Uh, there's a little bit of discussion um, about the nuclear subdeal with uh, – with Australia, mostly about Admiral Richardson being paid, which, by the way, if I was Australia, I'd pay him too, not just because he's a CNO, but he's a nuke. 
if you got to get a program up and running, talk to somebody who's run it. Um, he's a reactors guy. I have no problem with uh, him. I don't think it's cash out. And of course, the usual stuff, talking about pop culture. Now, when you go over to um, France 24, their English um, side of the house, you get a very different equation. Dominating, not just above the fold, but uses up four-fifths of the page, is about the uh, Bakhmut offensive in Ukraine. Um, it talks about uh, Italy seizing migrants in the Mediterranean. Uh, if you do look at the Washington Post, there is a small article about um, people dying at sea, trying to get to San Diego by sea. And, of course, um, if you go over to the BBC, every day there's an article about their lack of enforcement of the channel. So we could do an entire show just on that, which I think we have in the past. But it talks about um, – Israel, it talks about um, a little bit of the problem with the snow in California, but there's three articles on China. Uh, there's um, more about Ukraine. It's, it's just a much more of an international focus. Now, the argument could be, well, France is on the continent, et cetera, and so forth. In 2023, the Atlantic is a ditch. The way time travels and aircraft travels, you know, heck, if you if you follow on Twitter, um, Live Tracker, we had a, a B-52 today that flew from the, the U.S., entered the Baltic Sea, went right up to Russian airspace. Kind of funny, somebody made the comment about they, they blew their exhaust into Russian airspace, which it was pretty tight. And then it flew over the Baltic Republics, went down the Siloesi Gap, and then proceeded on to the Balkans. Um, there's a lot of – there's no reason why what I derisively call the Imperial Capitals newspaper or record should, should so ill-inform people about the world when a medium power like France, you go look at their website, and it's much more international-focused. Uh, it's – the Washington Post is one of the first places to complain. Um, you know, they do these, like like National Geographic in 1955, going into the Amazon to look at tribes. They'll occasionally send a reporter to West Virginia or Alabama <laughs> to go look into their nation. Um, they like to talk about the ignorance of the American people and how short-sighted we are. Well, they need to, you know, heal thyself. Uh, we have um, a lot of people in their primary readership who, if they rely on the Washington Times, to, uh, not the Washington Times, Freudian slip, Washington Post to inform the world form, yeah, they're going to be ignorant. It's just, it's very frustrating to me um, the difference that the newspaper record in our capital is uh, versus uh, other peoples whose nations arguably don't have but a fraction of the international influence ours do. An ignorant populace, ignorant decision makers, and ignorance and lawmakers does not make for good policy. So, yeah, I kind of went on a little bit of a rant there. How do you fix it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not in the media business. Yeah, but you, you, you know how to fix it. I mean, Bezos, is, he's, he, he owns the Washington Post, and, and it, his leadership should be, you know, to if he wants to influence public opinion, let's, let's assume that that – let's go back to the, you know, the – the purposes papers as they used to as they used to work before they became you know one one paper per town there used to be lots of papers uh you know he wants to influence public opinion well he for good in influencing public opinion if he would help educate the public about the issues that are you know why the issues are so so important now he you know people say well nobody pays attention to that you know people do pay attention to what is presented to them if it's presented to them in an interesting way so if if the issues of uh, that the the, uh, the uh, national issues of what happens when you drain the petroleum strategic petroleum reserve what does that do to uh, our the, the our our 
strategic position in the world, you know, those types of issues need to be explored in depth. I don't see that kind of coverage except, it seems to me, on somebody's substack post or uh, on, on the occasional blog. I, I don't know where uh, those stories go if they're, if they're not being covered in, the, in what should be our national media, as you say. And, you know, they, the Washington Post and the New York Times pride themselves on, on their leadership, but the, their issues are all um, are not necessarily in tune with the the people who would who would read them if they were actually interested instead of presenting some some um, what is the word insular view of 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 what is important. So, you know, I, I appreciate there are people who have a lot of different opinions about uh, transgenderism, but I don't think that uh, in the great, great scheme of things it's important, but it's you know it's not as vital as uh, gosh, is our Navy, uh, Air Force uh, uh, big enough? Are they big enough to deal with this uh, this uh, threat from China? And, and can you present that realistically so so folks on both sides could argue the issue? You know, I, I, you know, I don't want the paper to represent only my view. I want the the issues to be brought out so that we can have a, a public debate about this stuff instead of, well, you know, I read the Washington Post, so that's all I have to know. Or I heard it on NPR. That's all I have to know. You know, we, the the whole function of our society, the whole way we set up our Senate and House was was to allow debate, and and have these national issues raised, and they're not helped by by these uh, myopic uh, media pieces. In a classic example of that. Let's beat up on the Washington Post because we all need hobbies, but. Uh, Anybody can do this. They can go over. I don't know if you have to be a paid subscriber to do this or not, but um, if you do, just you just go over there and hit their search button. And a lot of what we talked today about China, we, we haven't used the T word, not trans, um, Taiwan. Ultimately, it's all about Taiwan. So, you know, go ahead and you search Taiwan and one, two, three, four, five, six things come up on my iPad when you do that of, over the last six days. So, Basic average one one a day, one a day. Something about Taiwan leaks on to the Washington Post. Of those, two of them actually tie into a conversation we had last week. I, Washington Post listens to mid rats, I guess. It talks about the outer islands on Taiwan. Somebody cut their cables so they didn't have internet. So a couple of islands off Taiwan had their cables cut under the water and they lost their internet. So um, mark one up for uh, for mid rats. <laughs> You know, I don't know if we should take credit of it for it, but why not? Uh, besides that, there's an article, which, I, okay, good on them, from uh, a couple of days ago about Speaker McCarthy not going to visit Taiwan, but instead we'll meet him in California. Uh, Taiwan is one of four things mentioned at a, a hearing up at the Hill. And the other two are about baseball. Uh, it, we've talked about the Philippines before. You know, talk about back to the future. Uh, a guy I served with who was a year group ahead of me, great individual. His uh, father, I think I'm getting this right. His father was in the U.S. Air Force, um, met his wife when he was stationed in the, had to be early, early 60s, in Taiwan. His, his uh, mom was uh, originally from Taiwan. And there used to be quite the military presence in Taiwan. And uh, that's, you know, one thing that I don't know who's going to break the seal on that, where, you know, more and more Americans go there to exercise, maybe to be stationed at some point. There was a, um, a survey that's been going on in Taiwan. The, the graph that I saw went back to 1994, and it talks about independence. And it's a pretty pretty interesting one where they say, do you want independence now? Do you want to maintain the status quo, work towards independence? Uh, do you want to join with China now? Do you want to maintain the status quo and then eventually join China? Or do you just want to maintain the status quo? And they've got a couple other things on it. And it's interesting how it has tracked the national mood in Taiwan. And when you look at unification with mainland China, either immediately or eventually with a status quo. Since 1994, those two combined have gone from 20% down to 6%. And 
Inversely, those that say, I want independence now, or I want to maintain the status quo but work towards independence, has gone from 10 to 30%. The status quo hasn't changed that much. Uh, from 48% to 57% want the status quo. And if you consider the status quo is pretty much independent of mainland China, so that's um, 87% of the Taiwanese don't want to have anything to do with China. So does that change? It takes two to tango. But it, it, if this whole thing revolves around keeping the People's Republic of China, but from having ownership of the largest aircraft carrier athwart Japan's um, sea lines of communication, then when do we take the next step in our partnership? And should we take that next step of the partnership? I think that's an open question. I can argue both sides. But when you're looking, just like we had to wait politically for the environment to be ripe in the Philippines for us to move closer to each other, hopefully this time with a, a more respect, respectful and equitable relationship. Um, when will that card in Taiwan be pulled? Because the, uh, the Taiwanese are, are in a way very similar to the, the Singaporeans. Um, they, they are their own distinct culture, but they're Western adjacent, just like the Japanese are Western adjacent. Um, they're, turnkey and being able to work closely together. I guess the argument is, is, uh, is the risk worth the reward or the other way around? That's a, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated issue that, that again, you know, we, we, there may be discussions being held in the, in the halls of Congress and maybe them are in closed session or whatever, but, you know, with, somebody has got to step up and, and, and and lead instead of the we've get we've given so many mixed messages I just i can just think in the last few months i mean the, the messages of of the speaker of the house going to visit the messages of oh yeah we'll, we'll defend them oh well i didn't you know the president misstated when he said that i mean uh there is a there is a certain uh quality i guess of of keeping an ambivalent policy if you can <laughs> but but uh i'm not sure that that sometimes you just have to say yeah we're you know we're gonna we'll do what we have to do and uh so you just you just you don't don't do anything silly china so. well they they had a, a wonderful free and fair election so chairman g <laughs> I always told I mispronounced that. Uh, he, he's been reelected with uh, was it a hundred percent or ninety eight point seven percent? I don't know what it, it is, but uh, it's it's a miracle. He and Putin need to get together as the only uh, uh, massively reelected uh, politicians on the face of the planet. Well, well except you know, for one of the Kim, except for the Kim current Kim in Korea, North Korea. Today's present Quinn. Yeah, and again, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But one of the least persuasive pushbacks I've, I've heard about um, U.S. support for Ukraine has been that it's driving Russia and China closer together. I, I'm sorry. They're already in bed with each other. I mean, uh, Dragon Bear is not a new concept. They're, you know, BRIC, the BRIC countries. Russia and China is, is in there. India doesn't much like them, and Brazil is the nation of the future, has been and always will be, um, but isn't. Uh, of course, China and Russia are going to be closer together. They're international pariahs. Uh, and, I mean, does China, besides maybe Myanmar, which I still prefer to call Burma, but I've been informed I'm not allowed to do that, um, Maybe as a friend or an ally, maybe Cambodia, I don't know. Uh, but China doesn't have any friends because she's not very friendly. Uh, again, it goes back to that mutual respect thing that, that comes with, with uh, um, leadership in the international community that they're not too good at. Um, uh, I mean, at, the, at the Munich conference, supposedly, I only saw two articles about it, but uh, the, the Chinese did not make friends at the uh, Munich security conference. But I don't think they feel like they need to make friends. 
um, which which is unfortunate, but that's okay. It, it plays to our advantage. But yeah, I, I'm not I'm not too worried about any type of Chinese Russian uh, partnership. It's already there. Yeah, I I agree, and and you know, China. The only the only difficulty I see is that China and Russia have to decide who uh, is the center of the universe and and who should be kowtowing to whom. So. Um, <laughs> you know, China. China's view of the world is is is, uh, is thousands of years old, regardless of whether they call themselves a, a communist country or whatever. You know, it is it is we are the we are the middle kingdom. Everybody owes us uh, some kind of uh, obeisance. Is that the right word? Anyway, uh, whatever the right word is, they they want they want the the old ways back, and we have. Run, run, run our mouths for another whole hour. My gosh, <laughs> amazing how that works, isn't it? Uh, Where's the well, time hey, we, go? We had a we had a real active chat room. I because I, uh, I I don't like to read the chat room while I talk because I already have a hard enough time speaking English as it is. Uh, but we had a real active chat room today, so that was great. I appreciate all of y'all weighing in. Um, did steal a couple of your ideas. And it, it has been another quick hour, and uh, I guess we'll let everybody get on with their day. Yeah, I, I apologize for those of you who are headed to the uh, selection show for the uh, uh, NCAA off uh, NCAA March Madness stuff, because I know you it starts at six. I mean, after all, the high priority won't be nothing will be known until six thirty. But uh, I don't have a for some reason the chat does not work for me. I'm going to have to to look into why that's not working. So I, I apologize for not being in there because I usually get a lot of great thoughts from the people who do show up. So anyway, everybody yeah. go have a great day. <laughs> we, we're going to have a guest again. Absolutely. We're going to have a guest again one we of do. these days. We have a, a couple of guests lined up um, that uh, have had to shift to the right for reasons that you'll find out when we when we have them as our guest. And, and unfortunately, and this will be a topic we'll, we'll do another time, uh, the hell, I'm not going to say that. Um, it can be a challenge for some individuals to be able to uh, come on and speak and talk about even relatively benign topics because uh, uh, there is uh, there are some restraints and constraints. So I, I'd go out there for those that are in positions of leadership and management. My two cents is one of the best ways you can show respect and you can show trust and confidence in your junior personnel, especially in the national security space, let them get out there and write. Let them get out there and speak. Let them come out and be part of the discourse. Well, whatever fear you have, it's, uh, it's unfounded. Uh, we have great individuals with great ideas that really can contribute to the conversation that um, aren't in a place to do that. We've talked about this for, for over a decade here on Rats, but uh, just an opportunity to remind, because from what I've seen incidentally, the uh, that that aperture is starting to tighten again, where they don't want people to get out there, and there's just a few people who are in uh, different areas that have a leadership that understand that. So if you're on the fence uh, with somebody, trust your subordinates to go out there and be a conversation. 99.9% .9 chance they're going to make you proud, and they're going to make our services look great because uh, when they get out there and speak uh, on topics or write on topics, um, the American public will feel better about the people who they trust with their security. So that's my soapbox. And until next time, I hope everybody has a great Navy day. Uh, we'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.
What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.